I feel like it's around about this time of year when something comes up over us and we're like, okay, it's time to clean up. It's time to kind of get into the back of that cupboard and see exactly what I stashed behind there. Uh, maybe one, two, ten years ago, if you've been around that long. Uh, for some reason, we often decide to spring clean in the midst of summer. I think it's something to do with air conditioning and the desire not to go outside. Um, but nevertheless, it is often a time where we do this kind of exploration and we find things that maybe we haven't seen in a long time. Now, uh, while I'm quite and perfectly happy to uh, clean up our physical spaces, one of those areas that maybe we don't get around to cleaning up all that often, but maybe we ought to, is often our digital library. That is our downloads folder that is filled with hundreds of files or whatever it might be on our computer. Maybe you've got to go through your photo reel and you notice that it's up to about 8,000 of which maybe 15 or 16 are the really good ones. And you kind of go, okay, it's time. It's time to do some work. Well, I was doing some uh, work recently going through some of my old uh, hard drives and I couldn't help but stumble across a music archive that I'd found back when I uh, was around about 16 to 18 years old. And, um, and in this archive of music were all these artists that I hadn't heard about for a very long time and one of them particularly came to mind. Now you may know of him as an artist, you may not and if you don't you're going to learn a little bit about him because today what he has done in the area of music is something that our gospel writers were actually doing in the first century. Now let's see if this character surprises you. His name is Weird Al Yankovic. Now, be honest. Who knows who Weird Al Yankovic is? It's okay if you don't. Good. All right. That's, I'm guessing that's about 40%. All right. Now, that's all right. Now, this picture of him right here very much characterizes who Weird Al Yankovic is. He is actually incredibly successful. He is the biggest selling comedy recording artist of all time. He has won five Grammys and he is only one of three artists in history to have had their own top 40 singles in each of the last four decades. The only other people being Michael Jackson and Madonna, right? So he's in the top three people who have, over the course of four decades have had a top song in the top 40. And you're like, who is this guy? If you've never heard of him, you're like, how have I not heard of him? He is a comedy artist. He takes songs and he does parodies of those songs. So he'll take a song by Errol Levine called Complicated and he'll turn it into Constipated. He'll take a song that is Gangster Paradise and he'll turn it into Amish Paradise. He takes these songs and he's Inverts their meaning, he gives them new lyrics, and he turns them into these comedy songs, as well as writing originals too. He had a quite a famous song uh, about uh, 15 years ago that he titled Don't Download This Song. This was the time when LimeWire and Napster and all these kind of online torrenting things were very, very popular. And he deliberately wrote this song in order to provoke people, right, and go, Don't download this song, which of course everyone did. And when I'm talking about download, I'm talking about, I'm talking about illegal download, not legal download, right? This is what he did. He would take this industry that was music and he would subvert the system. And he was very, very popular in a way that no other artist has been able to recreate since. This guy's old, really old. Four decades worth of music, right? He's looking pretty good. And did you know, pop quiz, he's also a Christian. Isn't that fascinating? So Weird Al 
did something amazing. He subverted a system that was already in place to the point where almost now, if Weird Al parodies your song, it's almost an honor. If Weird Al has parodied your song, you have made it, right? Isn't that incredible? Anyway, you should totally listen to some of his songs. Hilarious. This idea of taking a medium or an industry and subverting it, twisting it, turning it, almost hijacking it in a way is not a new idea. And that's what we're going to see in our gospel writers as we engage in this series in the book of Mark. We're going to be going through the book of Mark over the course of this entire year in the AM services. We're not even going to get to the end, can you believe? It's going to take us a bit longer than that. But right here this morning, we're going to start at the very beginning with Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And this is what it says. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. So straight up, Mark is writing his purpose for this work that he was about to do. The purpose of this work is that we are about to begin the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, if you've been a Christian for a long time, we kind of take Gospels for granted. But I mean, imagine chatting to someone who had no knowledge of Jesus and they were just kind of exploring for the first time. They're like, hey, how do you find out stuff about Jesus? Christian, oh, well, you read the Gospel. Oh, right, the Gospel. Um, how many of them are there? Four. Oh, there's four? Why are there four? Uh, um, which one's true? Which one's accurate? You can imagine the kind of follow-up questions that you might get for someone who has simply no idea. They're like, what's actually going on with the gospel? Why are there so many versions? Why are there so many writers? Surely it's a bit excessive, isn't it? Well, actually what we discover is that these writers are doing something very purposeful with their gospels. And today, we're not just going to talk about what the gospel is. In fact, Dave Blackman tonight at our PM service, which is kicking back off at 5 PM, he's going to talk about the gospel as we work through Romans. But today, I want to talk about what is a gospel. Like, what is a gospel? If someone sits down and says, today, I'm going to write a gospel, what are they talking about? Because this is not a new idea. And as we open up the book of Mark, we need to know what we're working with. If we treat this as something that it isn't, we can go on all sorts of paths and, and, and kind of bring meaning into all sorts of things that author never intended. So the first thing to know is that the gospel was not a new idea. Now, here's a lovely Greek word for those people who love their Greek, euangelion. It can mean good tidings or good news. But whenever you see that word good news in the scripture or gospel in the scripture, that is what is translated from the Greek euangelion. Now, prior to Jesus, we're talking about centuries prior to Jesus, the Greeks were the first or one of the first to bring a euangelion to the world. And while it does predate even him, one of the most famous bringers of a euangelion, a good news, a gospel, was Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander the Great was a massive conqueror. He conquered huge areas of the known world at the time. In fact, some would consider that he conquered all of the known world, at least in their perspective, at the time. And he would leverage this idea of a euangelion, a good news, as essentially this piece of political propaganda that went alongside his conquering. So Alexander the Great would come in and he'd conquer an area. Now, tell me, if you are conquered, does it feel good? Does it feel like good news? Of course not. 
You've been dispossessed. You've been hurt. This is not good news at all. No, no, no. Alexander the Great says, it is good news. I know that you're feeling conquered. I know that you're feeling like you have nothing now, but I want to tell you, there is good news. It's actually a blessing that you have been conquered because the empire of Macedonia that would become Greece is here. We are here and we are going to bring everything that you need, all these things that you didn't even know that you needed. So yes, while it feels like you're being conquered, the good news is that Greece has come. And this would begin with what would essentially become what's called Hellenism or a Greek worldview at the time, which will deeply resonate with us today. As we work through this sermon, you'll be like, oh my goodness, not much has changed. So this idea of Hellenism of the Greek, this is what he brought with the good news. It continues in Western culture today. You see, whereas previously the gods were at the center of the world, I had to kind of appease the gods, the gods were my provision, suddenly with Hellenism, it became centered around humans, that humans could provide all that was needed. Humanity was at the center of anything. Does this sound familiar, right? We are the recipients of this same culture today. You see, this was the Evangelion, the gospel of the empire of Greece and Hellenism. Here is the gospel. Everything will be provided for you. We will give you everything you need. And we have this wonderful king or wonderful leader that you need to submit to. And if you submit to that leader, you'll provide it with everything that you need. And there were four big pillars that Hellenism was built on. Again, let's see if they sound familiar. Education. Healthcare, entertainment, and competition, or athletics. These were the four big pillars of Hellenism, right? Education, healthcare, entertainment, and competition. So while you have been conquered, and I'm sorry about that, the good news is that what is coming is so much better because Greece can offer you these things that you could never offer yourselves. This is the good news. That was the Evangelion that preceded Jesus. That's what a gospel was. This was what the thing, this is the message that would be declared to those nations who had been conquered. Now, almost two centuries later, in 146 BC, the Romans would then conquer Greece, bringing their own Evangelion. And their Evangelion might be one that you might be familiar with. It's called Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. Good news, guys. I know you've been conquered and you had a good run with Greece, didn't you? But their version of the gospel was just, it, was, it wasn't great. Pax Romana, the Roman Empire under the Caesars, oh, that is Greece on steroids. This is the real good news. We've got a real good leader. In fact, our leader is the Son of God. Oh, the life that you're going to experience is going to be wonderful. And they built upon these four pillars. And of course, Pax Romana did bring an unprecedented 200 years of economic prosperity and peace through violence, of course. Peace through violence and victory. And that right there fits squarely within where we hear about Jesus and the biblical narrative. Right here, where the Romans have had their Evangelion of Pax Romana, where they've had these pillars of Hellenism that they've built upon, and this, in this context, is where suddenly Jesus enters the story in a new way. 
Now, every time there was a new Caesar, there would be a new Evangelion, right? They would always want to be better than the previous one because this was good news. Now, I know I'm doing a lot of history here, but we need to understand the history to understand what the gospel writers are doing. I want to give you one more piece here just to understand what is going on at the time of Jesus. And this is the stuff that informed Mark and the others choosing to write a gospel. In the ruins of a place called Prien in Western Turkey, there is this little temple. Uh, this is like a, a real physical place, and it was most likely constructed just after Caesar Augustus was declared Caesar. So with Caesar Augustus being declared Caesar came a new Elongalion, Elongalion, right? A new gospel. And uh, in this little temple, they recovered this stone plaque that actually predates the birth of Jesus, right? which provides um, this kind of acceptance of an edict in 9 BC. It's actually called, uh, this, this is this word, it's called the Calendar Inscription of Prien. What it was designed to do was, uh, given this new Evangelion, given that Augustus was coming into power, we were going to change the calendar system, and you will comply. That's what this was about. And this is the words that are found on that tablet preceding Jesus. Since divine providence has brought to life the most perfect good in Augustus, Caesar, whom she filled with virtues for the benefit of all mankind, bestowing on us Augustus Caesar as saviour of the world, for he has put an end to war and brought perfect peace by the epiphany, that is the advent, right, when new Caesar, when a new Caesar came in, that was called an advent, sound familiar, yeah, <laughs> okay, of his birth, he brought the gospel of peace to all mankind. For this reason, the Greeks of Asia have on this day declared that the new year shall begin from now on, on the 23rd day of September, the day of the birth of this God. Never will another gospel surpass the gospel that was announced at his birth. He is not only Lord of the empire, but Lord of the earth and of the calendar and of time itself. Wow. Quite a declaration. Now, I share this with you not because this is true about Augustus, I share with you because this is what was happening prior to Jesus' birth. This was the kind of language that was being circulated about the Caesars and about Rome and about the gospel that Rome was bringing through military power and through education and healthcare and entertainment and competition. And you get this language that is eerily familiar to us Christians, right? You look at some of that language, you're like, oh, I've heard that attributed to someone else before in the Bible. Son of God, Lord of earth, gospel of peace to all mankind. These things are so familiar. Yes, they are. And so when we read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, when we read the gospels and when these guys sat down and they said, I intend to write a gospel they took this language that was familiar, right, that was political, that was loaded, you know, and they took it and they used this and they subverted the system. They said, we know that this gospel and this kind of language is always talked about the Caesars, and the Caesars are all about power, and they're about comfort, and they're about humanity being at the center of our world. And I mean, come on, let's hear, this is the language of our world, right? It may not be the Caesars, but we talk about powers, and we talk about comfort, and, and we, we find our peace so often in healthcare and in education, and, and I want to be, these aren't bad things. 
But are they the real good news? Are they the thing that is going to save people? Are these the things that are going to liberate them from their captivity? The gospel writers said no. And so we're going to write a new gospel. And this new gospel is going to be about Jesus and it's going to be subversive and different. It's almost going to be a parody of what the Romans are doing in Rome. Let's weird Al Yankovic this thing, right? Let's take what is there and let's point people to Jesus. So the gospel writers hijacked this form of literature and pointed people to the true King Jesus. And they were, he wasn't going to bring peace through power and violence covered by this kind of veneer of evolving education and healthcare and entertainment and competition, right? But the way of Jesus, this new king, his way and his kingdom was going to be a way of love, sacrifice and trust in the creator, in our creator, right? That is what the gospel writers are doing. So when we open up the gospel of Mark, or sometimes written in our Bibles, the gospel according to Mark, that's a nice detail, the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to Matthew, they are taking this form of literature they're saying, we are going to take what Rome has given and we are going to twist it and point people to Jesus. And people are going to connect with this because they're familiar with the language. They're going to understand these dynamics that are going on. And to be honest, a lot of these guys, they're going to see under the surface of what Caesar is, which is peace through victory. Not a true peace, not a true saving, but just another empire. And we've talked about empire here before. The difference between empire and shalom. We choose a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom. And so when Mark says the beginning of the gospel, the euangelion about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, can you see how dangerous this would be? We open it up. Oh, good on us. We've got a lovely gospel. Think about how dangerous it would be to write a gospel under the nose of Rome who had declared their own euangelion. We hold in our hands when we read this gospel, this politically subversive, revolutionary gospel, good news. And we need to understand that. And Mark, particularly as we work through the book of Mark, Mark is going to play to his Roman audience, right? He's going to play to his Roman audience. That's his primary kind of audience that he wants to uh, speak to. He's going to play off these education and healthcare kind of pillars, you know. He's going to play off the, the, the competition and the entertainment. And it's going to be rapid. If you ever read Mark, it's like, go, 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 go. Then this happens. Then this happens. Then this happens. It suits a Western mindset perfectly, right? We don't have time to stop and think. No, 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 no. That's Eastern thinking, right? We go, 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 go. And we see Jesus bringing miracles which not only fulfill the prophecies of old, as Jen pointed out, but also speak to things like healthcare, right? Jesus came as a teacher and a rabbi that speaks to education. There are times when he's going to be the victorious one, which speaks to athletics and competition, right? There's going to be times when people were amazed at his teaching, entertainment. Mark is going to use these pillars and leverage them for his gospel. And we're going to discover that too. So let's just take a moment to pause because I've gone pretty hard on context here. But you've got to, you're right. You can't not say these things. Otherwise, we don't treat the Bible for what it actually is. I mean, I think we ought to be challenged 
first and foremost about how we approach the gospel given our often dependency upon systems that are centered around humans. Now, again, I make this very, very clear. These are not bad things, all right? We've got people who work within healthcare and with education. Good, right? They're good, they're not God. <laughs> they're good, they're not God, all right? And this has been a challenge all the way through the Bible. People taking something that God declared good and turning it into God, which we call idolatry, right? So these things are good, but they're not God. And so we need to challenge ourselves to think, hey, have we placed any of these things or given our allegiance to any of these things or placed our faith first and foremost in these things rather than the good news of Jesus and his way? I was chatting to some women just before the service. We were talking about uh, the, the, the violence that happened in Alice Springs just a, a couple of days ago, and, and they were just sharing how they were, they were lamenting. They were crying. They're like, this, this can't be the way. The way of violence is not the way forward. It's not the way of healing and the way of life. And they were saying they were praying, and they were praying for these families who are, who are, who are fighting and been fighting for such a long time. And just this, like, they need Jesus. It doesn't matter how we cover over that approach with what kind of, kind of elements of control and, and structure and, and help. They're not bad things. But actually, at the end of the day, Jesus' way of healing and forgiveness and love is what needs to break through. And we know this. And yet each of us, and I put myself in here too, we can get caught underneath the deception that these things are going to be the solution or at least they give us enough comfort to depend upon them rather than our God. How often do we choose to align with temporary kings or temporary kingdoms, these comforts of the world, rather than choose the sacrificial path of love and storing up, as Jesus would later describe it, as treasure that cannot be destroyed or stolen. He says here in Matthew chapter 6, don't store up treasures here on earth. And treasures aren't just our physical stuff, even though that can be it as well. Where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Like, don't store up your treasure in the temporary stuff. Don't place your faith in the temporary stuff. But store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Sorry, I've lost the final verse there. But where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 21, right? And this is a good challenge for all of us, particularly here in Alice Springs, particularly in Australia and Western society where we have so much comfort to not buy in to the systems and choose for them to be our gods, to align ourselves with them. They are good but they are not God. And this is not a new story. <laughs> this has been happening for millennia. Millennia. So, to wrap up, to write a gospel, just as Mark did, as Matthew did, as Luke did, as John would later do, was a dangerous and subversive act against the statements and the powers and the cultures of the time. And now whether it was the gospel according to Matthew or to Luke or to John or the gospel of Mark, the good news is always clear. There is a new king and a new kingdom. That's what Greece declared, that's what Rome would declare, and that is what subversively these gospel writers were declaring. There is a new king and a new kingdom. 
And so it shouldn't surprise us that every gospel writer had an agenda behind their gospel. And it doesn't mean that they're recording different lives of Jesus or they're giving us an inaccurate picture of history. It's just they choose what they include in order to be subversive and to speak to their audience. But front and center of every form the gospel will take is this declaration, hey, hey, guys, guys, guys. We know that there's been Greece and we know there's been Rome and we know they say it's all going to be good. But we actually know what's going on and bubbling under the surface here. And Caesar is not God. And the way of violence and Rome and conquering will not bring real peace. But guess what? There is a new king and a new kingdom. And this new king and this new kingdom is going to do something amazing in you and through you and around you. And it's going to bring a form of healing and redemption and hope and possibility that these other forms of empire could never offer. And unsurprisingly, this declaration is going to be all over the words and the works and the ways of Jesus. It's unavoidable. As we go through Mark, you'll see this over and over again. Jesus declaring, there is a new king and a new kingdom. So a couple of challenges. First challenge, I encourage you this week to read Mark chapter 1. It's not that long. Read Mark chapter 1 this week. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be journeying through Mark chapter 1. Okay? I encourage you to read it and read it as a subversive work that was taking what these Romans and Greeks would use as their euangelion and turning it and twisting it into something brand new. If you want to take it to the next level, if you're like, ah, oh, reading, yeah, yeah, I reckon I can do better, write Mark chapter 1 this week. Write it out. Just get whatever translation you want, just write it out. It's amazing how much you will memorize just by simply writing it out. But again today, I wanted to frame up this gospel. Because where the original hearers heard this gospel and the cultural foundation that they were built on and how we hear this gospel today are oddly similar. <laughs> okay? So let's not treat this gospel as something that it isn't, but rather as an incredible work pointing people to the risen Jesus. So there you go. That's Mark chapter 1, verse 1. I heard that it took a couple of years to get through Genesis at this rate. It's going to take us a while. Nah, we'll be fine. Next week, we're going to talk about John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism and what's going on there. Um, and I just actually want to put the invitation out. We, we kind of thought someone might be getting baptized today. They haven't shown up, and that's totally fine. But if you have committed to this new king and new kingdom, right, then I encourage you to get baptized if you haven't. Public declaration of allegiance to Jesus. We've got to keep the water in for next week. It'll still be warm and chlorinated. Let's hear those perks. But for now, let's engage with our gospel. Let's work out what Mark is up to. And let's discover Jesus. Let me pray. God, thank you that you use these amazing people to write these works that point us and to Jesus and, and who he is and what he did and, and how he came and he subverted all the expectations and the systems. God, help it to bring the text alive to us once again, not just as something that happened, but something that happens. As you, God, continues to, to subvert the empires and the structures and the authorities and the idols that, that we might 
demonstrate an allegiance to. And you invite us again to trust, to trust that your way is the best way, to trust that you, through your death and resurrection, have done all that is needed to bring us right relationship with you and for us to bring right relationship with others and with the world. And so, God, may we live this. May we live this gospel. And as we explore, would you reveal fresh truths to us? In Jesus' name we pray.